This is In-Ear Insights, the Trust Insights Podcast. Do you want to use AI in your marketing, but you're not sure where to start? Take a class with Trust Insights and the Marketing AI Institute. The AI Academy offers more than 25 classes and certification courses to start you on your AI journey, including our Intelligent Attribution Modeling for Marketer Certification. One membership gets you access to all 25 classes. Visit trustinsights.ai slash AI Academy to learn more and enroll today. That's trustinsights.ai slash AI Academy to enroll today. Are you struggling to reach the right audiences? Trust Insights offers sponsorships in our newsletters, podcasts, and media properties to help your brand be seen and heard by the right people. Our media properties reach almost 100,000 people every week, from the In-Ear Insights podcast to the Almost Timely and In the Headlights newsletters. Reach out to us today at trustinsights.ai slash contact to learn more. Again, that's trustinsights.ai slash contact. In this week's In-Ear Insights, let's talk about uh, machine learning and AI, we'll talk a bit about this, and the array of different tools and techniques available to us and why I feel like some folks are doing it wrong. I was talking with uh, a technologist not too long ago who was bragging about his company is so cool. They got this new model, the state of the art and all this stuff and put it through its paces. And it, it wasn't, the results were, were substandard. The results were no better than something you could pick up off the shelf and do yourself. And in looking at the process behind the scenes, there are a whole bunch of things, important prerequisites that were missing. Uh, specifically, they hadn't done any of the, the basic pre-processing, some filtering, some cleaning of the data, some um, sampling of the data to make sure the data was okay. And as a result, the model that they created spit out garbage. Mm-hmm. And when went to talk to these folks, there was this almost arrogance to their to their tone. Like, oh, no, no, we don't need to do those things. Uh, the, the software is smart enough to, you know, we've got the state-of-the-art software. It's smart enough to handle that. And I said, but clearly it's not if it's still spitting out garbage. And it got me thinking about the corporate cultures and that sort of tech arrogance. It's not just a, a guy thing. It's, a, it's a very much a tech thing. Um, around AI and machine learning and how we can avoid this, how we can prevent this, because clearly this company has spent millions of dollars and thousands of of hours putting together state-of-the-art software that is not state-of-the-art. And that seems like, I'm sure their investors are probably not thrilled about this outcome. So Katie, we know that there are a bunch of technical solutions, but how do we fix people culture of saying, well, I'm clearly you know, the, the smartest person in the room. I, you know, what I say goes, I, I must be right. And then seeing results, which are clearly not the best. Um, you slap them. <laughs> end of story, end of podcast. No, you know, it, what you bring up is a really challenging issue because you're trying to change people. Changing tech is probably one of the easier things to do changing people is one of the more difficult things. And more often than not, the issues that we see within an organization really stem from that people problem. And so, you know, you're describing a very typical scenario, the I know best, you can't change my mind. And there is no immediate solution to that. It is something that at least in my experience takes time to start to change people's, uh, 
opinion of themselves and of the work that they're doing. And a lot of it comes down to, can you present back to them real life scenarios where this thing is not working? Can you present back to them the data that shows this is the way that you approached it, this was the result, and this is how it's working versus had we done it this way, some alternatives, and this would have happened this way instead. Or I did some mock-up and projections. Had we done requirements gathering and due diligence ahead of time, this is the money that we would have saved. You know, So there's different ways to approach it. And it's really understanding your audience. Uh, so if you're the person tasked with trying to change the opinion of the person who is high and mighty on themselves and think that they can never be wrong, first of all, I feel bad for you because that is a really difficult thing to do. But second, it's it's more than just saying, no, you're wrong, you need to get over yourself. It's really using psychology and reading the person and understanding how they respond. And so it's it's not an easy issue to tackle, Chris. How do you handle that, that tech bro personality? Because <laughs> in, in this particular instance, there was a, an entire area of domain expertise they're completely lacking that would have made their lives easier that would have saved them a lot of money and gotten them better results out of the gate but the person in question was was so blinded to that so like no 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 we don't need to understand you know this particular area of of, of machine learning uh we, we we our software is better than that. you know what we created is better than that <clears throat> and it it's that outright dismissal of yeah, this, there's some older stuff, but guess what? That older stuff actually works as good or better. You know, there are conclusive proofs in academic research that you know this machine learning model here offers maybe a half a percentage point better performance than the the old reliable stuff that yeah is is a little clunkier to work with and is not sexy. You're not going to win any awards. You're not going to get any press for it, but it works. So how do you how do you handle that tech bro? It's like, no, 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 we don't, we don't look at the old stuff. We're, we're, we're all, we're all in on the new stuff. The first mistake that people make is trying to prove someone wrong. So if you're dealing with that sort of aggressive personality of, I know everything you can't tell me otherwise, meeting them where they are and saying, no, you're wrong is just going to put them on the defensive. And likely they're just going to shut down and say, I don't have time to listen to you. The stuff that I'm doing is fantastic. And so it's really more about, you know, and none of this is meant to sound, you know, devious or backhanded or malicious, but it's really starting to, you know, work with them and collaborate with them. And, you know, okay, so help me understand why this is the best solution. Help me understand why this was the one picked and you didn't explore other options because I need to understand. And so it's really working with them to open up and explain and in some ways justify the decisions that they've made because you need to also believe in the thing that they're doing because you need to help them sell it or market it or you know do customer service on it or whatever it is and so showing them that you are part of the team and that you're on their side but that you need more information to understand it is a really good almost gentle way to get someone to open up and really start to explain why they made those choices. What you're trying to do in some ways is to like disarm them a little bit because in, again, in my experience that like arrogant tech bro thing is very much a facade and it's almost like that armor of, 
you know, I'm not super confident what I'm doing, but if I present myself as super confident, then nobody's going to question it. And they may not even be aware that that's what's happening. And so starting to poke holes and attack them and say, you're wrong and you're doing it wrong is only going to make the situation worse. You have to approach it as we're a team, we're in this together, help me understand why we're doing it this way. Hmm. Okay. Chris is now like, oh, so that's what you've been doing all these years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, how does does that play into the whole shiny object syndrome thing too? Because that's the other angle is that it's not only there's this belief in in being correct, but there's also this uh, shiny object syndrome of saying, you know, this, the, the new thing must be better. And in this case, the new thing isn't better and it's harder and more expensive than the old thing. So, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why having, and I, my dogs have, you know, happy Monday. Uh, I think one of the things that's really important on a team is making sure that nobody is working in isolation. And so that's why having like, you know, what I think they call it like peer development and, you know, a review committee and all of those things are really what help you get out of that, you know, bad habit of the shiny object syndrome. Shiny objects are great. New and innovative things are great, but you need somebody on the team who's willing to question, is this the right move for us? Is this the thing that we need to focus on right now? What problem does it solve that we are currently experiencing or do we see a solution and we'll come up with the problem later? And I think that the shiny object syndrome quite often leads to, here's a really cool solution. We don't have a problem for it, but it's a really cool solution. If we can just use it and then we can convince people that they need it. And it's the absolute backwards way to innovate. And I think that, you know, again, it's making sure that nobody is working in isolation. So if you, you know, if you're the CEO and you don't have an advisor or a mentor or someone that you can bounce ideas off of, then you probably need that person. Because if you're relying on the people, you know, who report up to you, they may not feel comfortable saying this is the wrong decision. Um, you know, and then if you are on the engineering team, the development team, the IT team, there should be people within your uh, organization who can say, I don't know that that's the right thing. Or can you help me understand why that is the right thing? What do you do in a situation where you don't have those size teams? I mean, for example, for us, there's, mm-hmm. there really is, and this has been the, uh, a theme for a good chunk of my career, is there's no one to actually QA the, the code, mm-hmm. right? Because there literally is nobody else who understands within our, our organization what exactly is going on behind the scenes. It was the same way at, you know, at, the, at the previous place that we both worked. Where there was, yeah, I literally could have said anything and, and people would have had to accept it because there was no one to look at it and go, that, that doesn't look right. You know, that's a, mm-hmm. uh, the outputs are, have been good. The results have been good. So it's not, there's not obviously a flaming dumpster fire behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, especially if you're somebody who is managing a person like me and you don't have the technical experience to to look under the under the hood and go, huh, what's all those roaches doing? There? <laughs> um, how do you manage how do you manage that? Because there may be cases where that the person who's writing that code may have a blind spot, may have that arrogance, may have that shiny object syndrome. Well, and again, it comes down to feeling confident to ask questions. And they're not antagonistic questions. They're just questions of, 
you know, so that we can be on the same page and the same team around the thing that you're creating, help me understand it and explain it to me in such a way that I can then, you know, um, talk about it on your behalf and you don't need to be in the room because I want to be your advocate. So I need to understand it wholly. I don't have to be able to push the buttons, but I need to understand the methodology and I need to understand and answer questions of why was this the methodology chosen and not something else? And this is a conversation, Chris, you and I quite have a lot so that I can do that on your behalf. And so, you know, if in the scenario where you're a smaller team and you don't have that, then that's really where you need to rely on those communities that do exist. And so maybe you belong to an engineering Slack community or, um, you know, I can't think of the name of the other ones. The, um, you know, there's GitHub and then there's uh, like Stack Overflow. Stack um, Overflow. Stack is what exactly. Yeah. Those kinds of communities are where you could actually do some of that peer review if you don't have that built into your organization. Now, that works only if you are willing to take the feedback. If you are, you know, a little bit hard headed and say, no, my stuff is great, then you probably aren't open to doing that. But then you also have to you know, live with whatever the result is. And I think one of the things that strikes me uh, as you were sort of describing this, Chris, is, you know, I think some of the arrogance is, well, the results look great. So why would I do it a different way? Well, how do you know the results are the true results or are they just, you know, biased because they're the results that you were hoping to get? And I think that there's a lot to unpack in that. There, there really is. And that's a case, you know, the classical machine learning example where uh, somebody build, built this image recognition software to differentiate between a, a dog and a wolf. And it did great in the lab, failed miserably the moment it went to production. And then once the postmortem was done and they looked inside the model, the model was looking to see if there was snow in the photo. And if it, there was snow in the photo, it was a wolf. And like, mm -hmm. okay, so the results in the lab look great. But but not so much. And we see this a ton in medicine. You know, we see in, in clinical trials, it looks great in the lab. And then once it goes to trials, it goes, uh, that that didn't perform as expected. The risk there of bias is extremely high because, again, we all, everyone in this situation, whether you're in a clinical lab, whether you're doing machine learning, whether you're just doing your, your marketing reporting, you have a built-in incentive to have results that look good. Right? That's, that's just the nature of... Uh, everything that we do. I, I have an incentive to create software that works. Right? Uh, <laughs> I can't think of any organizations where there's an incentive to to fail um, and when you're encouraged to to fail without eventually succeeding. And so the challenge then is how do you tame that so that it's still honest? Right. Yeah, like, yes, the, this thing does fail more often than just like we have this one client and the software that we built for this client. The first five editions didn't have error checking built into it. Uh, you know, the sixth edition actually has error checking built into it now and, and works much better. Uh, but it took a while to get there. And there, I think that happened because there was no process to build that in place. Well, and that's a really good starting off point. And so this is something, you know, that we talk about quite a bit is process isn't meant to get in the way of innovation. Process is there as the foundation for innovation. So, you know, Chris, in your example, you're saying that, you know, five versions of the software didn't have error checking. And then we finally said, oh, that's what needs to go into it. So we updated our documentation and any new software moving forward 
has error checking built into it. Therefore, when you are presented with a new uh, data extraction challenge, you can say, these are the steps that I need to follow for the basic foundation to know that it will work. And then I can innovate on top of it. Um, You know, and so I think that process is one thing. And then the other is, you know, failure is such a taboo world, taboo word in the business world that, you know, it's, it's okay to fail. And it's actually better that you fail a couple of times, like before it goes into production. I think that people are so want their stuff to go to production so quickly, that they don't do that QA, they don't do that error checking. And they're just like, no, I'm confident it'll work. It has to work. It just has to work. If I just like put all my hopes and dreams in it, it's definitely going to have to work. And then it fails. I've and then, <laughs> right. And then you kind of look like a fool. <clears throat> but if you had spent a little bit of like R&D time, and this is something that companies need to make the decision to set aside for, then you could get all those failures out of the way and then build something really great that would go into production. So to wrap up, whether you're dealing with shiny object syndrome, hard-headedness or uh, fragile tech bro egos. At the end of the day, it's the people that present the biggest challenges to your your outcomes. The technology is easy and process is straightforward, even though it may not be easy. It's, It's managing the people. So if you feel like you're struggling to manage the people, Go ask for some help. Uh, if you haven't already done so, join our free Slack group over here at trustinsights.ai slash analytics for marketers. If you've got questions not only about analytics and the tech and the numbers, but hey, how would you manage this situation? Or hey, I could use some advice on, on this and you don't have that peer group. Come on by and join us. We're happy to have you there. <clears throat> if you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. Uh, go to trustinsights.ai slash TI podcast. You can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it. It's over there. Thanks for watching, folks. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.